Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. And I'm excited to be with you here in 2018 for some more episodes of the podcast. I've had a great start to the year so far, taking a little bit of time away from the podcast to work on some other things and to have a little bit of time off. I've uh, done a lot of skiing this last month. In fact, I think I've done more skiing this year or I'm on track to do more than uh, in any previous year, which, as you guys know, makes me very happy. Uh, so that's been really wonderful. I took a trip to Los Angeles for a wedding, and I was able to visit the office of Dr. Dovi Prero, our guest from our last episode. So it was fun to connect with him in person and be able to see a little bit about what's going on in his office. In my practice, we've uh, we've had a good start to the year. Uh, my focus this year has been trying to reduce a little bit the number of clinical days we're working, trying to do that and at the same time increase our production. Can that be done? I think it can. And hopefully we'll talk more about this in our interview today with Dr. Jeff Kozlowski. The other thing I've been working on is getting some sponsorships for the podcast. I talked about this a little bit in our last episode. I've had a huge response from companies interested in sponsorships. And as I discussed before, I'm going to be very careful about separating any sponsorship messages from the content of the podcast. Uh, I certainly don't want to infringe on uh, anyone's viewpoints or uh, feel constrained in any way in what I'm able to share and my recommendations to you guys. So we'll be very clear about what segment of the podcast is the sponsorship message and everything else you hear uh, will be, like I say, straight from uh, the mind and heart of myself and our guests. If you're a representative from an orthodontic company or a company that provides services to orthodontists and you're interested in getting your message out to our audience of thousands of orthodontists, please contact me and I will provide you with some more details. Today, I want to start the new year by reviewing two books. These two books are written by the same author, the well-known speaker and uh self-improvement guru, Tony Robbins, who I'm a big fan of. And he's written two books recently on financial matters, personal finance, investing, these sorts of topics. The first book is called Money Master the Game. The second book is called Unshakable, Your Financial Freedom Playbook. Tony Robbins, I, I wanted to review these because he has such a huge media presence, and I'm sure many of you have seen these books on the shelves in the stores and uh, on TV appearances, uh, maybe on Facebook. Let's start with this first book, uh, Money, Master the Game. This is a huge book. It's very ambitious in its scope. I would maybe say it's overly ambitious. Tony was able to book some really big names to interview, such as John Bogle, founder of Vanguard, Ray Dalio, Carl Icahn, Warren Buffett. The interviews are very fascinating at times. Sometimes they're a little bit slower. If you're into this sort of stuff, personal finance, investing, I think you'll find some interesting things. But even for me uh, as a 
financial kind of enthusiast. Uh, there were parts that I thought were a little bit hard to get through. The advice is for the most part good. It's occasionally contradictory since Tony is talking to so many experts and um, drawing on their philosophies. So um, I thought it was a little bit unfocused, a little bit too long, uh, a little bit of a slog to get through, but certainly some fantastic parts in there. And uh, if you're really into that, uh, that's a good book. In contrast, and and released not long thereafter, is this next book, Unshakable, uh, Your Financial Freedom Playbook by Tony Robbins. And this book almost seems to be written in response to the criticisms that I've just kind of talked about that, that others have had of this first book. Uh, it's slimmed down. It's, it's under 200 pages, so it's a quick read. And I think it's a much better book for the audience that it's targeting. It's a good introduction to many financial topics. Uh, talks about how to think about investing, common behavioral traps that investors fall into, how to avoid fees and taxes, how to navigate downturns in the market, all these sorts of topics. And I think it does a much better job of focusing in on these things, being succinct and to the point. Tony says in the book, the single biggest threat to your financial well-being is your own brain. And he also says 80% of success is psychology and 20% is mechanics. I like the last chapter, which will sound familiar to those of us who listen to Tony uh, on his audio tapes or, or I guess CDs. Tony talks in the last chapter about the science of achievement, uh, but he also has this new angle about the art of fulfillment, how to create a life that not only brings us success, but, but also happiness. So I would, I would recommend this book, Unshakable. If you're thinking about reading one of these two, uh, that's the one I would go for. I think it's a much better, uh, ratio of, uh, return versus time invested. I will say that Tony does have a little bit of a conflict of interest. He is on the board of directors and seems to have some financial involvement with this group creative planning. And also by extension, a company called America's Best 401k, which sets up 401k plans for dentists is, is I think one of their big verticals that they target. It seems to me that these are good companies, but you know, he does kind of plug them a little bit. And, and obviously there's a bit of a conflict of interest there. So I would skip money. Uh, I would read Unshakable. Um, it's not my absolute favorite introductory book to personal finance. That would probably be the white coat investor book, but it covers the basics and you get a good dose of Tony Robbins. Uh, as well, thrown in the mix. So I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Jeff Kozlowski. But first, let's have a quick message from the sponsor of this episode, Mary's List. Mary's List is an orthodontist-only study club and buying group with over 90 companies and service providers that offer their best pricing up front. They vet companies for quality, service, and pricing. You save time, energy, and money. With over 1,400 members, Mary's List has the buying power to negotiate deals no individual practice is able to on many of the best quality products and services available. Mary's List's mission is to be an advocate for the orthodontist and educate their members on how to save money and be more organized in their practices. The average reported savings from a Mary's List membership is $10,000 or more, with many doctors reporting a savings of fifteen, twenty, or even $50,000 a year. Mary's List membership includes access to group-negotiated pricing and dedicated Mary's List reps, a getting-started guide with a 30-minute coaching call from one of Mary's trainers, the study group of 1,000-plus members, a Staples Premium membership, and ongoing support in their portal and weekly newsletter. Find out more at maryslist.com, M-A-R-I-S list.com. 
Today on the podcast, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Jeff Kozlowski, who many of you know, and maybe you've seen him lecture. Uh, Dr. Kozlowski has lectured really all over the world. I think he's in demand. He's presented on topics like digital orthodontics, aesthetics, efficient treatment, treatment mechanics. Dr. Kozlowski graduated with a degree in economics from Syracuse University and received his dental degree and orthodontic specialty certificate at the State University of New York at Buffalo. He's been published in a number of orthodontic journals, including Seminars in Orthodontics, the Journal of Clinical Orthodontics, Clinical Impressions, and the Progressive Orthodontic Magazine. Jeff is an avid cyclist and endurance athlete. He has completed five Ironman triathlons and near to where I live has gone up the Mount Washington bicycle hill climb 10 times. Uh, Dr. Kozlowski practices in New London in East Lyme, Connecticut, where he lives with his wife, Amy, a pediatric dentist, and their two children. Jeff, I want to welcome you to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Thanks, Lance. I'm happy to be here. We're recording today from your beautiful new office in East Lyme, Connecticut. Tell our audience a little bit about your orthodontic career and your practice today. Awesome. Thanks. So uh, I've been practicing almost 20 years now, graduated from ortho at Buffalo in 98, spent the first nine years of my career in a group practice local to here with three partners and multiple offices, and then retired from that practice in 2007 to open my own practice in 2008. So we're going on nine years here at Kozlowski Orthodontics with two locations in southeastern Connecticut. A few years ago, we bought another local orthodontist practice, which we've had for about three and a half years now, and we call that Mystic Westerly Orthodontics, and I have a great new young associate named Mike working there, so who you met today, of course. Yeah, yeah, it was great uh, hanging out with you and Mike uh, here today. It was was a blast to be here in the office. We heard in the intro that your undergraduate degree, Jeff, is in economics, and I'm curious uh, if you think that gives you a different perspective on on the profession of orthodontics, the business of orthodontics, and maybe the metrics that are used to manage an orthodontic practice. It, it's funny because if you were to talk to someone who's actually a business person, they would say, you know, an economics my, uh, major doesn't actually give you a leg up in the business world. But the truth is, I think most orthodontists probably don't have as much business background as they could have to be running fairly sizable, productive businesses for many of us. And so, so a background in college in biology without the, the background of having business classes at dental school or an ortho school, I do think economics gives me some help. So I think a combination of enjoying the metrics behind running a business as well as having some background and understanding how to evaluate business, looking at cause and effect of really the systems. I like looking at the systems in the business. How do we design the systems to accommodate the patient volume we have, the challenges we have, and provide great outcomes? So maybe it gives me a leg up, but I don't think to a real person, person an economics degree does a whole lot. Sure, sure. Um, but you've been lecturing a lot this year on the topic of clinical efficiency and uh, you know how orthodontists should be thinking about their busy practices. Um, why do you feel so strongly that this is a message that orthodontists need to hear now? I think it's, it's a message orthodontists need to hear because I feel it's, it can be pervasive in our profession that we go to work. 
we see patients five days a week or four days a week. When I'm in some of the lectures and I ask orthodontists to raise their hands if they know how many days a year they work, very few can raise their hand and say that they know. Their answer is, well, I work four days a week and I take some weeks of vacation. And so effectively what they're doing is they're setting themselves up to be in their office a certain number of days and then they just do whatever production comes their way over that number of days without necessarily putting any thought to it. For me, the, the difference was when I, when I retired from my group practice before I opened my own, I was a stay at home dad for a year and I became very protective of that personal time with my kids. They were younger at the time, but my, my kids and, and my family time and my own time for exercise and hobbies. So when I came back to work, I said, all I ever wanted to work was three days a week. Effectively, I cut it down to 11 days a month. And then I said, so how do I do the most production that I can do in that amount of time to keep my out-of-office quality of life as good as it can be? So it became less about how many days was I going to go to the office and do what was there and, and more about limiting the amount of days yet being as open to the production as we could. So the focus was on scaling the practice by measuring it based on starts per day. So if I'm there 11 days a month and I do one start a day, I do 11 starts a month, and you can calculate that for the year. And then as we grew, it was two starts a day and three starts a day and four starts a day and five starts a day, and then and on from there. And you can grow and scale that by adding assistance, by adding supporting staff to the office. And so you can, you can set up your practice to be what you want it to be. But I think a lot of times orthodontists just go to work yeah. and take the patients that come their way. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting experience that you had to take that time off to be able to kind of regroup and then come at it with, you know, kind of a new focus. Were there any other things when you decided I'm going to get back into the game here of orthodontics that you felt like you wanted to do differently or had learned by, by having that time or, or being having to have a fresh start? Well, one of the things that I, that I realized during that time, the group practice, we co-treated patients. And while I had three other very good orthodontists with me, one of the challenges of co-treating patients is you didn't necessarily know exactly what happened at the last appointment. And so it was challenging to, to know how the sequence of orthodontics went. And this will lead into to one of the other things we talked about today, which is digital photography and orthodontics. As you know, I take photos for every patient at every visit in my practice. And having been here today, you see how much we use those. We look back at last visit. We look at the visit before. And so for me, I knew that, that the digital photography would help me learn on my own the the treatment mechanics that I'm using, what is effective and what is not. What's effective, I want to repeat, and what is not, I want to figure out a way to improve. So that digital photography allowed us the opportunity to, to sort of really visually streamline the clinical process of orthodontics. Really, in my practice, I just wanted to provide great results in the least amount of time possible and with the fewest number of appointments because I realized that it's the fewest number of appointments that meant I had to quote unquote, work the least. Right, right. And I think many of our listeners have growing practices and have experienced this dilemma. You know, the practice is growing, the clinic gets busy, you know, we're to the afternoon and we're focused just on turning those chairs over, getting through the day. And, and that's kind of an insidious trap because at the end of the day, you feel like, 
whew, we made it. You know, we, we, we did it. We, we got through all of that. But, um, at the end of the day, maybe it was just retie, retie, retie. And then, you know, we're kind of creating this growing problem that's just festering and, 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 and waiting to get worse and worse. The orthodontic hamster wheel. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been there and that's the challenge is when you're either behind schedule in the clinic or you're at that busy volume time, the easiest thing to do is to cut out portions of the appointments to shorten the appointment time to turn it over faster. You don't, you have four patients in the reception. You don't have any chairs to put them in. You might even have an assistant available. How do you make all that happen? And the easiest thing to do is to do less. But what I found is that often doesn't actually do you the best, the best for your patient and the best for yourself because it can lengthen treatment time. It can mean an increased number of appointments so our focus has always been and on the clinical efficiency side on doing the most we can at each appointment, even when it's not the easiest thing to do. So you are a little bit behind schedule and repositioning four braces and changing the turbos and starting some elastics and changing wires would help that patient move forward. It's very easy to say, ah, we'll see her back in four to five weeks and do that, but you may not have openings in four to five weeks the patient is already in the chair. It might only take 15 more minutes to do today, but it could take another half an hour appointment to do. So doing what you can today is one of the number one things that we do to save, save appointment time, uh, number of appointments and appointment time. Cause they're already in the chair. So it's my team won't look at me cross-eyed if we decide to reposition upper five to five at four forty-five in the afternoon. Cause the alternative is that that's a 45 minute appointment that takes up an appointment slot sometime down the road. Right. Right. And I think uh, we had Neil Kravitz on the podcast. He talked about that. You know, you fill the time today so that you can create time uh, in the future. And, and, I, and I think that's true. It's, it's a tough thing to have the discipline to do that. Being an orthodontist, there's all these kind of pressures that are coming at you throughout the day that I don't think anyone else besides the doctor is aware of because no one has to deal, you know, run interference with the staff, with the patients, with their parents, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot to handle. But I do think that, you know, kind of starting a little bit with the end in mind, I like how you talked about thinking through, you know, the sequence of how this is all going to work will set you up for success. But you have to put some time and you can't just let the day happen to you. Yeah, it's so it does take, first of all, some self-awareness and it certainly takes discipline because it is easy to do the easy thing. And sometimes it's hard to do what appears like the harder thing now, but ultimately, and that's my team and I have a conspiracy together that we conspire to do everything we can at each visit so that it's less we have to do later on. And the less we have to do later on, the easier it makes future days which then opens times on the time on those days to do more on those days when the, it's, it's like a just in time we have work to do. Let's do as much as we can today and fill today. And then maybe we have less to do tomorrow. Sure. I want to dive in a little bit uh, about clinical efficiency before we do that. I I'm curious if you have any tips for our audience on, you know, how to start and market a practice, how to get some momentum going, how to get patients through the front door so that you have the exams to fill two and a half, three and a half, four and a half starts a day. Well, that's the question we'd all really love to answer is what's the best tactic for marketing. Um, for me, I think I've had a couple of advantages. One is I practice in an area that I grew up. So there's a bit of a natural advantage in that some of the people bringing patients in are people I went to high school with or knew from growing up. 
Uh, a number two advantage would be marrying a pediatric dentist. So I have a wife who's a pediatric dentist whose office is next door to us where we sit right here. And, uh, and they have a large group practice. So generating referrals from, um, from friends and, and relatives and or spouses is beneficial. I think there's, there's a big move in orthodontics to get away from the professional referral and go towards the patient based referral. And I think both are important. Uh, truthfully, it's important to have good relationships with the, the dentists in your area. We have a lot of referrals from periodontists. I would look from, from, for, for someone starting a practice, I might look for places that people don't look for referrals. So I have referrals from oral surgeons. I have referrals from ENTs. I have a lot of referrals from periodontists, implant specialists that realize they can't place an implant because the roots, the root proximity, et cetera. Those may not be your, your preferred 13 year old orthodontic patient with seven to seven, that's going to take 15 months to finish, but it's still, a, it's still a start and it's still a patient that benefits from orthodontics. And, and I enjoy that kind of treatment. So, I mean, we could talk a lot about different marketing avenues, but I would say being involved in the community, whether you grew up there or involved, but being involved with the dentists in the community, cause it's still an important referral base. The truth is they're a gateway to some of the patients finding our practices and then I would look at a strong patient referral base, having a fun time with your patients. And, and a big thing I would say is opening it up for them to be able to give you referrals. We love having you in the office. We're so glad that Dr. Brennan referred you to our practice, but did you know that you don't need to have a dental referral? So if you're at the soccer field with Johnny and mom and another mother ever asks about orthodontics, tell her she can give our office a call. She doesn't need to have a dental referral. So there's ways that you can can genuinely and politely ask people to support your practice that that is really in their best interest. If they want to have if they have questions about treatment and want to find out about it, maybe they don't know that they can call and schedule an appointment. So I would say uh community dental referrals and then patient referrals would be my three big ones. Great. Great. Well, let's circle back around here. Um, I want to get into some of the low-hanging fruit that could help someone maybe who's who's has a growing practice and is on that treadmill, their, their hamster wheel, as you called it. Uh, they're, they're running faster and faster. Um, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're even financially doing very well, but they're thinking, how long can I sustain this? So we, we talked today about five kind of tips that we wanted to talk about um, for people. And, and you already hit on the first one a little bit, which was clinical photography and specifically using that to really understand your mechanics. And that, you know, the first thing here is that if you don't understand your mechanics, it's hard to really have any efficiency. Yeah. The first thing that I think leads to enhanced clinical efficiency is doctor knowledge, really just the doctor understanding their mechanics. And we mentioned how we use photography in the office to learn the outcomes of the decisions we make at each visit. So if I choose to do to, to change wires at this visit and make an adjustment, what does that look like at the next interval in say six weeks? And photography is a visual to help doing that. But the truth is I think doctors should visit offices. They should go to courses. They should find all sorts of avenues to learn new technologies and new techniques. Um, but also hone in on improving the ones that they're already doing. It doesn't mean changing a bracket system every year. It's just how do you get better? And there's a lot you can learn from yourself and there's a lot you can learn from others. Um, one thing that I thought of after you mentioned that is I would add loops to that. So I have 2020 vision. As you notice, I'm just old enough now, folks, that I'm starting to wear some readers, but 
but I wear loops and I think loops are incredibly important loops. And I wear a headlamp because we don't have overhead lights as you noticed in the office, but a step further, my clinical team all wear loops and headlamps being able to see it. It's one of those things that I think sets us apart when patients might be choosing between offices, the level of precision that we work towards, we have to wear magnification to be as precise as we want to be. So I thought about that, but on to number two, Number two is an educated clinical team. So a doctor having good clinical knowledge, but a team that is incapable of following through on the doctor's wishes is problematic. But I'll, but for me, a team that is very knowledgeable is actually enhancing. I have probably five or six clinicians on my team that think like orthodontists. And you heard it today, just talking about the mechanics of treatment. I'm sitting down at the chair and they're telling, it's, it's almost like, an orthodontic instructor asking the resident what they think they should do and then agreeing or disagreeing. And um, I think this is a common tra- trait of, of some of the high-performing offices that I've been to, and I definitely saw it on display today. Uh, if you can empower your assistants, I mean, your assistants, some of them, like you say, I mean, they, they talk like orthodontists, mm-hmm. and, and they're coming with you, telling you where the case is, and giving suggestions for what the next step is that most of the time you agree with, and occasionally you tweak a little. Like when Krista said, I'd like you to step up the lower right five and take a look at that upper left one. I think it needs about five degrees of palatal root and you and Mike and I looked at it and we decided to do a little bit of rotation on it, but it might need palatal torque. But when your assistant is telling you that a tooth might need five degrees of palatal root torque, it's helping you pick out things that could be improved in your cases so that you don't let anything slip by. So I think education is number two. And then you asked, well, how do we get to that level of education? I think it's just constant training. Caitlin, my clinical coordinator mentioned, I try to teach 15 to 30 seconds at every appointment I do. Just something that I notice. Hey, look at this. This is why I'm doing some interproximal reduction here because of the shape of this tooth. Um, so as they're learning a little bit at every time, they're putting it in their, their piggy bank of knowledge. And, and eventually they become these really robust, knowledgeable clinicians that could effectively do orthodontics without us. And, and so it's like having a bunch of orthodontists running around the practice it makes us even better clinically. Um, the third thing, the other third tip that I would give, we've actually already mentioned, which is doing everything you can at every visit. So what we saw and talked about today in particular, I would, I would advise docs to take a look at their extra care or emergency visits. When somebody comes in with a bracket off and they're four weeks after their last appointment, but maybe five weeks till their next appointment, can you do everything you would have done next time instead of that turning into a putting the bracket back on and sending them out the door? Likely you've already got the wires out. They're already taking up a chair. Can you make the progress you would have made next time? And oftentimes you can, and if you can do it, then why not do it? And, and as a side note, what that taught me was oftentimes our interval for appointments. That's a question I get when I'm lecturing. What are your intervals between appointments? My answer is, there are what they need to be. The analogy I use for that is like driving a stick shift. So I, then I respond to them and I say, how long do you wait between shifting from first to second gear? And then everyone laughs like, well, that's a dumb question. It is what it is. Are you going uphill, downhill? Do you have a 700 horsepower Ferrari? You know, I'm not a car guy, so maybe it's not a 700 horsepower, but you know what I mean? You drive by the seat of your pants. You feel the, the how much, 
how much first gear has gone and whether it's time to shift to second gear, continuing to step on the gas in first gear isn't going to get you any faster. So spending 14 weeks in a light round wire might not be the best thing for that first gear wire, maybe spending four or five weeks and then shifting to second gear. And so we started looking at our emergency appointments, which we, we have probably no more and no less than the average orthodontist. We found that we were able to make progress to the next appointment, which saves the patient five or six weeks sometimes. And it also started to have us question, is an eight or 10 week interval really the best thing? So that's the other challenge with the orthodontic hamster wheel is sometimes your schedule gets so bogged down, your next opening is 12 weeks out. So now you're doing something in 12 weeks that you probably should be doing in four or five weeks. And the negative outcome of that is you're extending treatment time. And when you extend treatment time, what it really does is you have patients that end up with challenges with hygiene, lack of compliance, and really frustration. The best marketing you can do is to finish patients on or ahead of schedule. Yeah. And people are happy. Yeah. And you were sharing with me that I thought was interesting, the data from Gage, that the average treatment time versus expected treatment The average time. treatment time in the U.S. across 1,000 practices is 27 months, but the average promised treatment time or estimated treatment time is 24 months. So on average, a thousand orthodontists are finishing their patients three months behind schedule across the entire profession, which just creates annoyed patients. It doesn't do our profession a service. My goal is to finish two months ahead of schedule. Right now, our numbers are, I'm estimating about 19 months of treatment and our average treatment time is right around 17 months. So my goal is on average, and truthfully, I don't care if it's 17 months or 21 months to finish the treatment. I think it's better if we on average finish our patients ahead of what we estimate. And that's not by overestimating, Lance, that's by over-delivering. That's by doing everything we can, finding ways to cut treatment time, shortening appointment intervals, excuse me, when it's appropriate and necessary, and really over-delivering. So yeah. I think we were somewhere on number three of what yeah, we could I think, do clinically. I think we did number three. I think we're on number four, which by my my reckoning here was patient participation. Ah, yes, Some people yes. would call it compliance. Yeah. You call it patient participation, which I think is a, is a, is a nice term. Well, and we, we try to put it in terms of what's in it for them. You heard me with the last kid in the chair today. He said, when am I getting my braces off? And I said, when you wear your rubber bands, dude. And he has four months left on his estimate. And so we did math. I said, you like math? Let's do math. If you wear your rubber bands 24 hours a day, you should be able to have them off in four months. But if you only wear them 12 hours a day, that's eight months. And you could see his eyes light up like, oh, wait a minute. This could get really long. And and I, I'm i not promising that that kid's going to go home and wear his rubber bands. He is a 15-year-old boy after all. But I think his motivation has improved because he understands his component of getting the treatment finished out the most effective way possible. So I think orthodontists tend to put it in terms of compliance, like what they bend the patient's, you know, they bend the patient's will around theirs. Really, my goal is to get the patient to have the patient understand that I'm on their side. We want the same thing. Listen, we want your braces off and a beautiful smile. This is how we're going to get it done together. So patient participation, I think, is a big part in having them understand what's in it. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, I think that's a lot of our overruns, right? I mean, we've got the teeth straight. You know, we we hopefully know what we're doing in terms of bracket positioning and bending wires. Um, but whether it's, you know, it, it seems a lot of times to come down to that uh, that last little bit of getting that class two home or and, – and I think there's a balance there between, you know, having realistic expectations and being willing to finish, you know, with, with a, a great result that's not maybe perfect – 
Um, but at the same time, you know, a, a compliant patient is really going to help you save visits, help you get done on time and, and, and kind of achieve all our goals. Yeah, it does. And I think that leads us into number five, if I can remember what it was, which is it, it, there was a time where orthodontics or the, the progression of orthodontic treatment was kind of three stages. You had your leveling and aligning, your sort of major working phase where you're correcting your class twos, and then you're finishing where you're doing detail bends, et cetera. And the way, one of the ways that we focus on being if, as efficient as possible is blending those together. So we're starting early elastics the day we put braces on a 95% of our patients probably ideal bracket placement by, and, I, and I'm, I'm fine with delegating, but I don't delegate bracket placement because I'm pretty good at it. And I still reposition three or so brackets a case. So it's not the best use of my time having my team delegate delegating bracket placement to my team when it takes on average seven and a half minutes for us to bond seven to seven with only two to three repositions, that's pretty effective. So, but we're blending those three stages. So when we're putting braces on, we're thinking about the mechanics that help us in the major mechanics phase. We're thinking about bracket placement for our ultimate finishing and, and then moving all the way through treatment. All of those phases are combined together rather than being separate and, and distinct. And it, it used to be that treatment averaged for me 24 months because it was like eight months of leveling, eight months of correction, eight months of finishing. And now we're finishing a lot of cases in 16 months or so because all of those are kind of constricted together. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think it gives you – I mean, if you have that in mind, then you're always working. Uh, you know, I think – the the problem is is if you if you don't get started on your major mechanics early if you don't take advantage of the opportunity to disarticulate and start with elastics you know you you potentially lost a couple months there uh, in in your correction and then if you're not kind of keeping that eye towards the detailing um, if, you know you can be working on that while your your mechanics are going um, that's I think that's where the you know quagmire is when people get trapped in in that you know four or five millimeters of overjet and it's just elastics retie elastics retie elastics retie and and that getting stuck there um i think is where you can, we get you can burn eight months pretty quickly doing that yeah yeah but but keeping you know i, re- I really like this concept of of working out working all phases of the treatment together um you know, I think I think that's going to lead to some real savings in, in the number of visits and the, and the number of months. And then you asked me ultimately, why is all this important? And I think the, the answer to that as simply as possible. I look at two main factors in metrics in my practice: starts per day and number of appointments to complete treatment. And and there's all the we could talk to consultants all over about different ways to measure your practice and how many active patients you have. But here's the deal: if you're doing five starts per day and every patient takes 12 appointments to finish treatment, then five times 12 is 60. You need to see 60 clinical appointments a day, plus your new patients and recalls, plus a couple of retainer checks. So it's possible to have an office doing five starts a day, which is a pretty productive office, that if they're seeing, if they're only taking 10 appointments to complete treatment on average, maybe they're only seeing 65 or 70 patients a day, which is not overwhelming. And so that's really what it comes down to in terms of why it's important. A a five-start-a-day practice doing 12 appointments to finish treatment, which is my goal, sees 60 clinical patients a day. But if you're averaging 20 appointments to finish treatment, then somebody doing three starts has the same daily busyness 
as the person doing five starts simply because the number of appointments to finish treatment. So you walk into a practice and go, wow, this guy is super busy, but maybe he's doing one start a day at a hundred appointments to finish treatment. Right. And we laugh at it because you take it to an absurd level and you go, this guy is really busy, but producing five grand a day where the other guy is seeing fewer patients a day in total and doing five or six starts a day. So for me, it's about, I want to be as productive as I can and minimize the workload it takes me to finish that productivity. The final thing I'll say is getting patients out of treatment, right? Because your practice will grow and bog down. If you're over treatment time, then your number of D bands falls behind your number of starts and eventually your patient volume grows and then you get really bogged down. So getting patients out of treatment is just as important as getting them into treatment, which is part of why I bonus my team $50 for every same day D band they do. That's another, we had one this afternoon. It's just in time. The patient came in, Krista was looking at her teeth. We were supposed to be getting them off next time, which is in about a month. There was no space left to close, no elastics left to, to do we checked with mom and we got him off in the middle of a, a moderately busy afternoon team gets a $50 bonus combined that they split and do things with, but that's one more patient that something can't go wrong between now and the next four weeks, a space can't co- open up, a brace can't come off. And I know those teeth are perfect where they are today. And we, we do it on the spot at three thirty in the afternoon. That's another example of saving an appointment. Right. Right. So, you know, I think it's, it's people can have a, an increased, um, quality of of life i guess or quality of work when they're in the office in terms of uh having a better flow having it not get overwhelmed not getting bogged down you know or as you mentioned in earlier you can use that to free up more days i mean you can you can be working fewer days you can still see my goal for you you can still see 100 patients in a day right um but you can do it on fewer days and uh you know i think yeah we'll work on it we'll get you two days out of the (laughs) office and you'll be more time skiing on the lake and stuff. that's right that's right i'm at about uh 16 days a month and and jeff's got me got me i got you down to 14 just in the next couple of months yeah yeah Yeah. we're, we're gonna get there so, you know, this is great. When people hear this, I think they're going to be really excited and they're going to be looking at things that they can change in their practice. And and one thing I wanted to ask you, you know, was when you're taking advice from different people, when you're hearing, you know, new ideas versus kind of maybe you've got your, your orthodontic professor in your head, you know, how do you balance these these things? You know, people say, oh, you can't do that or that's not how it's done or you have to pay your dues. You know, how do you decipher, you know, what's a time-tested, you know, true principle that you should, you know, really – keeping your practice versus what's outdated thinking that that's limiting us as a profession. You know, how, how do you try to kind of navigate that? Wow. I like that question. So here's what I'm going to say. And we're actually having our own team meeting to review next Tuesday, this exact thing in the business. And this is my philosophy. When we ask why you do something a certain way, if the answer is anything other than because we've evaluated that system and this is the best way to do it, then it's probably open for change. If the answer is because that's the way we've always done it, then it's really probably not the best way to do it. And you know what I mean? It's those systems that started out because you used to have paper charts. So you put a sticky note on something, but now you have computer charts and you still put a sticky note on something, you know, and you, you say, why, why do we even do it that way? Oh, cause Susie did it that way 23 years ago. So, so it's hard for me to answer because I have some, some, 
some of my mentors who are not young individuals that are as progressive as the youngest orthodontists I've ever met. And I've met some orthodontists that are graduating their residency and they're already set in their ways. And I find that impossible to believe that you could be just coming out into the world of orthodontics and be set in your ways. You know, maybe that's a personality trait, et cetera. Um, I think ultimately it's an almost impossible question to answer because there are things that I still do for my residency. Like my chairman said, if you can do 80, 80% of your cases are going to be easy. And if you can do those really well, then your life is going to be pretty easy. So it's the hard cases that you don't want to bog yourself down with, but you need to know the mechanics to get yourself out of the difficult situations. Now, of course, I don't use uh, rickets retractors and you know utility intrusion arches and and beg stuff anymore. To get there, I use continuous arch mechanics. So I think it's a combination of of what you feel that is tried and true and is comfortable and works for you, plus adding in judiciously what is new. I don't mean newfangled in a way that it's overly marketed. Now, people think that of the Damon system, but I've been using it for 16 years now with great results. And we talked about it today. I don't, it doesn't matter to me what brace anybody in the world uses as long as we're getting great results and taking great care of our patients. It's what I use and what I'm comfortable with. But there are a lot of people that feel that it's, it's an overly marketed appliance, yet I feel I get great results in an average of 16 to 17 months. So you couldn't pay me to change away from it. So I think, I think ultimately it's just a combination of what you're comfortable with, your comfort level with change. But I would sit down and ask yourself, why do I do something this way? Why do I ban sixes? Because I don't want six brackets to come off, right? We, had, we saw today we had a patient in the office that had bands on the upper sixes. And I have a assistant who's been here two years that has never seen bands before. Yeah. Never seen a headgear tube. Yeah. Okay. So, but ask yourself, why do we do something that way? And if the answer is really truly that it's the best way to do it, then great, keep it. But if you have any doubts about whether or not it's the best way, then go out and search a way to modify that system or that technique to improve it for yourself. Yeah. I think we have to be honest with ourselves. You know, I think that as orthodontists, we're very invested, I think, in our education, in our title, in our maybe position, in our community. And I think that unfortunately leads us to some static thinking. Um, and, and some of that, like, like we say, is it can, can be time tested. But other times I think we've, we've got to, you know, challenge, challenge ourselves, you know, and, and maybe, um, not be so invested in, in, you know, what we've, what we've done in the past to be open. And, and, and I think that's, you know, it's something that, that I'm always kind of striving for. I want to read a quote here that you, uh, gave in, uh, the most recent issue of the Progressive Orthodontists, uh, magazine. You said, orthodontics is such a wonderful and flexible profession. I tell residents all the time, you can make your practice life and personal life be what you want it to be. And, and I think that's something I feel like that's really come through in this interview. What advice would you have for someone who, who hears this and who isn't happy with something, who thinks, you know, how do I get my team on board with this? How do I, how do I kind of start from the beginning and, and, and reimagine my life or my practice? You know, how does someone have you know, maybe the permission or the confidence to, to make that decision? Just make the change. You know, I was, I was in a group practice with my father and, and other partners that I got along really well with, but I wasn't happy. And with the support of my wife, as, as I mentioned in that, I made the change. It was tough, but I made the change and now I have a practice environment that I want. If you don't like where you practice, 
I have a very good friend. You've interviewed him for a podcast. I won't say his name. Didn't love where he lived. And I said, listen, man, I left my group practice. I live in the same area, but I made a big change. Pack up and move. Sell your practice. Move to your dream home. And he did, and he's never been happier. Um, you don't have to live in the same area. You don't have to keep the same practice. You, If you don't like your team, fire them all and hire new ones. I mean, that's not exactly the way to go. but Or build the you know, if you like your team, but want to change the culture, be open and honest, sit down and say, Hey, listen, team, I don't like where we are now. I love you guys as people. I love what the work we do for our patients, but I feel like we have too much gossip or we're, we're not all pulling in the same direction. Be a leader. But the truth is you can make anything you want out of yourself. If you and I wanted to retire, you probably got a job in radio. You got a nice voice. I probably got a job. I'll go back and get my chef's degree from the Culinary Institute of America or something like, or an architect. I'll do, I'll do whatever. I don't care. I'll become a commercial fisherman and make money at it and love it. So you're never really stuck where you are. You may feel like you are. It's just your own inertia that's keeping you in that position. If you're feeling overweight and out of shape, get off the couch and and exercise. If you're feeling higher than go to bed and get some sleep and, you know, meditate or do something. I mean, you could probably cut that one out because that was stupid, but, <laughs> but, but ultimately, I mean, like you can be whatever you want to be in this world. No, I really appreciate you saying that. And I think there are a lot of people out there that, that need to hear that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's such a funny thing. I mean, we're, we're orthodox, we're very successful, um, but there's a lot of pressures, there's a lot of stress. And I think, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do through with this podcast is, is really connect people to, to mentors and to people who can encourage people to make changes that they need to, not only to give them the nuts and bolts, but also a little bit of the motivation. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. Thanks. We're going to wrap up here, Jeff, with our Elevate Express 8. We're going to have eight rapid-fire questions. We're going to get some quick answers from you. Does that sound okay? You got it. All right. What's your go-to treatment for full-step class twos? It would be starting with elastics because I've corrected some full-step class twos with elastics. For the moderate ones that are not skeletal, it would be a power scope. But for skeletal one, it's a herpst. Great. What's your standard retention protocol? As few fixed retainers as I can. Clear upper and lower retainers and fixed retainers on the lower in maybe 20% of our cases and then maybe 5% in the upper. Great. Who are your role models or mentors? Dwight Damon, Bob Smith, and the late Steve Tracy. Great. Great. What's your favorite orthodontic product or instrument that you use here in the office? Oh, well, I like my bracketizer. No one would know what that is, but it's like a little Hollenbeck carver that has lines on it that I use instead of a scaler because it's flat when I'm positioning brackets, but you can use the, the lines. It's got like perioprobe lines, so you can use it to measure bracket heights and stuff. Where do you get that from? I, you can ask the ladies. I don't, okay. I don't know where you get it. It's called, literally, it's called the bracketizer. It's the stupidest name in the world. Ask the ladies and get it. It looks like a Hollenbeck carver with uh, perioprobe lines I on saw it. you using that. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. What's the best vacation you've ever taken? Oh, there's a lot of them. Probably Zimbabwe, 
Zambia or no, sorry, Zambia, Botswana and South Africa with my family a few years ago. We did some safari and then we visited with some friends down in Cape town. We went, it was my first ever two week vacation in my life. Oh wow. Um, that was pretty good. But maybe the other one was, uh, my honeymoon, which was boating around Abaco islands in the Bahamas. It was a small little house, a small little boat, which was basically your car and you cruise around and just go snorkeling everywhere. And we're going to take the kids on that, uh, this April for our 20th anniversary. We're going to take the kids back to where we did our honeymoon. That's great. I've actually been there. That's a fantastic spot. Beautiful, beautiful. What's one great book that you've read recently? So I, I fall asleep when I try and read at night and I'm too high energy to do it during the day. My wife got me online uh, on audible, the, the James Fenimore Cooper uh, series, the last of the Mohegans. So the deer slayer and the last of the Mohegans and the deer slayer is like 24 hours of, of audio <laughs> and, and listening it at one and a half is almost too fast for that kind of book. So I, every drive I've been on for the last three months has been listening to these two books and it's neat cause I've listened to so many business books, so many personal awareness books, marketing books, social psychology books over the last 10 years that listening to a real literary classic has been a whole lot of fun. And it's about the sort of upstate New York outdoor, et cetera, the, the um, French and Indian war. So, so the um, leather stocking tales, it's called James Fenimore Cooper. Got it. Got yeah. it. We already mentioned, but the bracket system you're currently using the Damon system, Damon system. Yeah. Great. Uh, ceramic, same thing. Yeah. We'll use the Damon clear in the upper Damon clear. Perfect. And what is one area of orthodontics that you want to learn more about in 2018? There was a time I thought I would say airway, and I've learned a little bit about that. But I think really I would like to be more proficient at moving teeth with plastic um, aligners. We, we've we grown our align practice uh, over the course of the last year. The practice has grown considerably, but both in brackets and aligners. And um, we've done a lot of work with our techs to try and help dive in on the designs to save me the amount of time it takes to get cases really set up. But my goal is to get Damon like finishes with Invisalign. And there was a time that I couldn't do that. And I think we're getting better and better at doing that. Some of that is align Invisalign's improvement. And some of that is my improvement as a clinician and my improvement as a, uh, a setup technician, so to speak. So I think probably I'd like to be able to consistently get Damon-like results with my aligned cases. Great. Jeff, this has been a fantastic experience uh, being here today in your office and being able to interview. I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing this with our audience. Thank you, Lance. I appreciate you coming down. I know you're not on Facebook a ton, but you are in our Elevate Orthodontics Facebook group. So if people have some follow-up questions, maybe they can post them there. Is there another way that's uh, easy to get a hold of you? Uh, if somebody needs to get a hold of me, my cell phone number is 860-287-2688. Just send me a text with your name on it. That's probably the easiest. Great. Great. Well, thanks again, and uh, look forward to talking again soon. All right. Thanks, Lance. Hey, guys. Before we sign off here, I just want to thank Jeff and his team for hosting me here in his office. It's been a fantastic experience uh, to be able to spend the day, to be able to observe. Uh, you've heard this advice several times on this podcast from several guests. 
but get out there and spend some time. Uh, maybe not all of you in Jeff's office. I know he's uh, bombarded with requests, but you can learn something from so many of your colleagues. So get out there, spend some time with your colleagues, uh, observing in their offices, picking their brain, asking their questions. Uh, I think if there's anything I learned from this podcast, it's that we have so much to learn from each other. I want to thank again the sponsor of today's episode, Mary's List. Go to maryslist.com to learn more about their offerings. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode.